0: Petersfield's Shine Radio.
1: You're listening to Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly.
2: Hello. This is Talking Books. It's our regular program, which is our monthly look at everything to do with books. And I'm, as usual, in the One Tree Cafe with Tim O'Kelly. Hello. Hi, Tim. <laughs> and we're going to be joined by my friend and author Kate Moss. And more about her later when she's with us. So let's kick off, Tim. What are you currently reading?
3: Well, I'm reading at the moment, uh, as usual, a couple of couple of different books. I'm reading An Englishman at War by James Holland, which is a Wartime diaries of Stanley Christopherson—quite different sort of thing to read. Um, they are uh, amazing. He's, he had an extraordinarily extraordinary life and an amazing war. He was a young—he was in his mid twenties, just hopping around in London, not really knowing what which direction to go. Uh, he was a—he was in the, in the TA at the time, so he had some a little bit of connection with the military. But he went straight in as a very very junior soldier is he british british and he ended up as a colonel in charge of his regiment by the end of the war had extraordinary extraordinary war and it's his it's his wartime diary excellent so, it's so,
2: i have to say a very thick diary
3: it is it's it's um he did quite a lot in that in that six year six year period i'm also reading my sister what's well, finished my sister the serial killer by oh. oyinkan Braithwaite. um now this is a this is a very it's a funny book i mean it 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 is actually about a serial a sort of serial killer the the, it's narrated by um this woman who's whose sister who's a very beautiful sister and has all these um suitors flying after her and she gets bored of them quite quickly and they tend to meet a bit of a sticky end uh and it it sounds gruesome but it's actually not that gruesome it's just quite funny um bizarrely and um it's been a it's been a huge seller actually. It's been yeah. quite surprising. It won the um it was shortlisted for the Women's Prize of Fiction last year and now out in paperback and uh it's it's very entertaining. And it's um so it's My Sister the Serial Killer by Oyinkan Braithwaite.
2: Right, we'll put that on the website as usual if anyone didn't catch the name.
3: So another book I which I've read actually a little while ago now but I want was interested to talk about because it's one of our best-selling books of the year. Uh The Dutch House by Anne Patchett. Now she's a she's a big writer. She's she's um one of those big American writers that has had a lot of success over the years. Um and I've never I've never been that drawn to her books. I've read one Bel Canto about, oh. it's been about a dozen years ago or something, which which I did enjoy, but didn't I wasn't crazy about. Um this, on the other hand, I really liked. It's a story, it's a family saga, I suppose you could say, about a brother and sister uh growing up and then their 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 lives as as young people and as middle-aged people going through and the dutch house of the title is where they where they grow up um and they have a a, a difficult difficult time of it because their mother disappears uh and uh, their father remarries and to some to a stepmother stepmother from hell so, <laughs> so it's like uh, cinderella yeah <laughs> a bit like that and um, so they have they have a, they have a quite a tough Uh, early childhood so that's that's really the basis of the start of the story but it is it is a really it's just a family saga I suppose but it's um
2: is it part of a series no
3: it's not it's not part of the series it's it's a one-off book um and um it works really well I think
2: you see I wasn't very keen on Bel Canto Um, right why was that (sighs) It was one of our book club books, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And lots of people were very, very gushy about it. And that makes me resist even more, I think, because (laughs) that's the of person I am. Um, But also it's because she is so loved by everybody, and so I resisted reading anything. I was forced to read Bel Canto. Right. Um, But also I could just see the way it was going, and so I don't like books where I... Think I know where it's going, um, which is possibly why I like crime and so on. I like everything tidy. I don't like loose ends. I like order, but also if people are raving about something like Tolkien and Lord of the Rings, I resisted that for ages, um, and then suddenly saw what all the fuss was about. So I'm always willing to be proved wrong. So so I'm encouraged by the fact that you've enjoyed The Dutch House, having not totally raved about.
3: Bill Canto yes I mean I think I think you're right about some some there are some books that uh, everybody raves about and goes oh it's the most amazing thing and mm. then you and so you think well actually you know I'm gonna I'm gonna I'll hold off on that one mm. um and then when you come to it later sometimes it makes it all the better actually if it, if it works for you um but there are other books where you know everybody raves about them and you read them and you think well I don't understand what they're going on about uh, because I don't like this yeah, at all I know um but, um, the, or
2: blurb I th- can put you off.
3: Yes, that's because that's I've been true.
2: put off books in the past by hearing, thinking, "Oh God, that's awful," and then I'm forced to read it and think, "But it's actually nothing like the blurb."
3: No, that's right. Um, so, uh, you know, it's like the the, the covers of books. So they us they can put you right off, yeah. or they can they can sing, signal the right book. And sometimes the, I think with your with your books in the past, if some have had the you know the Perhaps the wrong cover image, even, even though it's been very good, it's not yeah. been the right for the book. So what reading. have you been reading, Susie?
2: I have well, the extraordinary thing is that since we've been doing Talking Books, having announced at the beginning I hardly ever read non-fiction, I've hardly read anything but non-fiction. And I think you are to blame, Tim O'Kelly. Right. Okay,
3: what what what, what um, is it then? <laughs> though you're not
2: to blame for this one. This is The Haunting of Alma Fielding by Kate Summerscale, right. And I was put on to this Because I, this is another one. I haven't read The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher because everyone went berserk about that. And I thought, no, I don't particularly want to read it. But I am really keen on ghosts. And when Kate joins us, I hope she and I will talk about our mutual love of ghost stories and so on, particularly classic ones. And I'm also fascinated by coming at the War Years.
3: So just point out, it's Kate Moss is joining us, not Kate. Oh, that's true, that's true, that's true.
2: Kate Moss. I hope listeners are on on the ball, but well pointed out. Um, and I, I hear fairy footsteps, so it might even so. Listeners, we are now joined by Kate Moss. Um, so I'm delighted, Kate, that you've joined us because we've just been talking about what we're currently reading. Um, and I am reading the haunting of Alma Fielding by Kate Summerscale. Have ah, you read it? Yet? No. Well, that's really interesting, because (laughs) this is weird, because I keep... Tim, have you read it?
3: No. You see, I read. I read her last book, I I can't remember what it's called now. The
2: Suspicions of Mr. No, the one in between. Oh, the one in between. Oh, you see, that wasn't... Very well reviewed, was it? I don't know.
0: No. Well, uh, see, I've been writing, so I'm yeah, not reading. Of course, reading. you've been in purda. Mm. Well, or, not really. Purgatory, or
2: yes. somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't okay. been reading proper books. If you right. <laughs> well, I've been reading *The Haunting of Alma Fielding* by Kate Summerscale. It's a true ghost story, and I want to talk to Kate later about <laughs> our mutual love of ghost stories. Um, but it reminded me very much of some of my sad and unmarried post-war relatives. A lot of the older ones post First World War, um, but also, of course, Second, where this belief in the afterlife, the supernatural and and being able to speak to people you've lost became really key. And so I think all of us come to this book wanting it all to be true, um, like the um, chief investigator Nandor Fodor, who she talks about brilliantly. So he is Chief Research Officer for the International Institute for Psychical Research. He's a Hungarian Jewish. Refugee, soon to lose many of his family members, of course, to concentration camps. Um, and Alma Fielding is, I suppose, we would say lower middle class, or or sort of working class, with quite a lot of possessions, so sort of wealthy thing. So, and actually, uh, John, our producer, is laughing, but actually, I know this is British. <laughs> it's a great distinction, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no. And it's not one <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel yeah, qualified yeah, 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 to make, yeah, yeah. but in the context of when it is and in the context of the story it's actually really important because one of the things is she has um a poltergeist visit the house of course possibly yes possibly a poltergeist and of course he has to have lots of things to lob around so if you were like pure working class there weren't the same number no, no, of possessions no, no. or important things that could either be secreted on the person or actually be lifted and appear so i'm not going to do any spoilers even for a non-fiction but i will say that kate Summerscale has completely achieved a perfect balance between the central story and its cultural context and i think they both nando and agnes form a bond And Freud's in it. Freud is dying in Hampstead and he gets really interested in the whole um, psychoanalytical account of the fielding case. And it's wonderful. So, you know, I've said rather pompously, you get a real sense, no surprise TK you get, you get a that was real, not my reaction. Yes, it was, <laughs> yes it was, you get a real sense of the protagonist wanting to find something numinous in an increasingly dark world. But there we are. I, I couldn't, I didn't lift that from anywhere, that was pure me. Good, very good. Right. So there we are, that's the currently reading. Made by the people of Petersfield, this is Shine Radio. So, Kate, now you're here. Um, hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to introduce you first, and then anything I've missed out, do you feel free to add. So, um... Kate, my dear Kate, um, doesn't know that we actually met in a swimming pool at a hotel, probably Goodwood or somewhere, but I didn't know who you were there and you certainly didn't know who I was. But then later on, Kate was teaching uh, with her husband, Greg Moss, on a creative writing short weekend or something at West Dean, which I did. And then I went on to do the MA with Greg. So we've known each other. A long time. But Kate to the public is author of the Labyrinth trilogy and many more, published in over 40 countries. She is a playwright, a broadcaster, a defender of live theatre and libraries, a champion of women's creativity. She is the founder director of the Women's Prize for Fiction, the largest annual celebration of women's writing in the world, and sits on the executive committee of Women of the World. Oh, And she's OBE, which she received in 2013. Kate, you said that you were writing at the moment. What is it that you're currently writing and how does it fit? Well, I
0: have, I've just finished actually, I've just delivered a book. I feel um, that I've been very becalmed in lockdown and quite um, uncreative. But then my son pointed out to me, said, "Mum, you've actually written a book." Oh yes, I have done (laughs) that. I have at least done that. So it's a non fiction book for for the Welcome Collection and Profile on being a carer,
1: Um,
0: and it's um, about my experiences over ten years of of being. A support to my mum and caring for my dad, then kind of being there for my mum after my father had died, and then more recently being a carer um, for my wonderful mother-in-law, Granny Rosie, who's 90, who lives with us and is now in a wheelchair and needs you know, full-time caring in that sort of way. A wonderful knitter. A wonderful knitter, a gin enthusiast, a brilliant pianist, all of these sorts of things, and it's called An Extra Pair of Hands. And I delivered it in October, and I'm now just doing, you know, that tedious thing that you will remember, Susie, of the copy edit, um, you know, the the wonderful brilliance of a copy editor, but the tiny, mm. you say on page seven, and but on page 10, and it's like, ah. Oh. Is this uh, as bad for non-fiction? It's worse for non because it's um, all of those things, all of the research that you've done for oh. uh, the, you know, how many carers there are in the UK, all of these sorts of things, every thing like that is being double double checked and i'm incredibly grateful for it um so there's that and i'm also doing a final pass of my play which is uh, my own adaptation of the taxidermist daughter which is another one of my gothic stories um and it's set in fishbourne not far from where we're recording this and so in just over the border into west sussex on the marshes and it will should have been on this year at the festival theater um and it will be the first ever new play by a woman on the main stage. Oh, so, congratulations. Yes, but the it, yes, thank you, but it therefore means
2: no uh, pressure feels, no
0: pressure <laughs> no pressure at all. So um so I'm just doing a final pass of that. So I've been my reading has been what it always is when I'm writing which is that I reread all my old detective stories. So I have over lockdown read Two hundred and sixty detective stories. Wow! I have reread all of Agatha Christie from Christy, the Great
2: Age. Agatha Alan... Christie,
0: Josephine Tay, Allingham, <sighs> Niall Marsh, Patricia Wentworth, oh, Niall
2: Marsh. I love Dorothy
0: L. Sayers. You know, I, I've read, and it's because when I'm writing. I don't want something new I don't mm-hmm. want some brilliant piece of writing that will take me away from my voice into somebody else's so it's like comfort food mm. in a funny sort of way I've read all of you know marple many many times and, and all of these things so I have of course read other books during this time but it's when I'm writing it's detective stories big
2: pile, big pile I think I think so many of us have turned to detective stories I totally get what you're saying that's a genius idea for when you're writing new fiction
3: tim so you've read you've 260 uh, <sighs> detective stories since lockdown since started
0: l- in march um and <laughs> i realized and i worked it out i thought this can't be true but because like many people my sleeping has been really terrible during lockdown so i i'm, I'm awake for three hours every night so i read a book a night Right. But they're short as well compared really to modern. Short. Books. They're kind of mostly about sixty thousand words tops. Right. Those, those, yes, exactly. So, <laughs> so you know, and of course, I'm, because I've read them before, I, I think it would be fair to say that you read those books faster because you're not necessarily savouring every
2: sentence. But it is, quite is like sort of gorging thing. on a chocolate biscuit yeah, because, yeah. you know, you don't eat those slowly. But so I was going to say that also, so that's from the author point of view, but I think generally in lockdown, crime fiction has become huge because it's an ordered world. So even if you're getting horrible murders and so on, everything is solved by the end. Well, I think I think that's it. It's about resolution, resolution. I think, Good in word. Uh,
0: detective fiction, that there is a wrong that needs to be righted and by the end of the book in a good detective story all the loose ends are tied up and there is resolution which we know in real life there isn't resolution and I think that's the big difference between detectives and thrillers. In thriller writing often a lot of you know, good people are lost for no reason at all. It's mayhem. There isn't a sense of sort of restitution and, you know, justice will out. But in an old-fashioned detective story, I would say that that sort of sense of Mm. beginning, middle and end and you can shut the book and think, now I know everything about that, um... And I think that that is re- you know really wonderfully reassuring for people in you know in terms of a reading experience. I think historical fiction has that too, actually, a sense of resolution. Uh,
3: I heard Richard Osman talking about about his book, yeah, um, thir- which I
0: have read actually, yeah,
3: <laughs> the, the Thursday Murder Club, and and uh, he was saying the same thing about it, it, now th- this time having a book with a with proper resolution, with a proper proper end to it, and a. And a the structure of a crime novel means that you you get that resolution and it's per, so perfect for our times, I but think. But it's
2: also set it in a care home and it couldn't have hit the shelves. Well, not
3: a care home, a retirement, retirement community. community. Come on. retirement community. Yes, sir. Yes, 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 okay. uh, <laughs> okay.
2: But still, it's when, you know, at one stage it would have been, God, are you kidding me? It's a load of old po- fogies sort of being no, detected. No, no, it's, it's very, very timely, I think. Because
0: I think there's so. a lot, you know, this is one of the things in my care book, um, An Extra Pair of Hands, that I i talk about is that we need a new language about aging and age uh, because almost everything that you see in the newspaper as regards age is is really negative Uh, and of course there are lots of terrible challenges and difficulties and um you know we know now that the the biggest cause of uh, death and illness for older people now is dementia for women uh, men still just heart attacks but that's partly because people many more people are living longer and we should be celebrating that and so I think Richard's book um has exactly that thing about the idea of well you could be in a retirement community as some of them are at the age of 55 I mean younger that's than all terrifying. of us <laughs> <I know. laughs> I, you know, that's the thing um and and you know and it's that idea that older people if they if they don't have a particular life-limiting illness Completely active, fantastic. And that's why I love Agatha Christie. Miss Marple is the most subversive oh, yeah. female character in literature. She's overlooked, ignored, sits in the corner, sees everything, mm-hmm. knows everything, and has a sort of clear moral code, if you like. She's not, you know, buffeted about. Um, and I I love that, and I think that's what's wonderful about Richard's books. Although it's very light when you start, but it becomes quite dark, that story. Mm. You know, it's not, it's not no it's not it 's not comedy old
2: people 's home as you do. no no it's, it's certainly not if
3: and there's there's a level of poignancy in yeah. it as well actually that yeah. that is um which perhaps you 're not expecting when you start the book
2: i agree i agree, I agree yeah. that it, tonally it really shifts except yeah. he 's very close to his mother isn 't he actually in real life, and so I was expecting there to be a degree of compassion at the very least and
0: yeah. the thing that you know one of the things when I was researching um for my care book was to discover that eight point eight million of us are carers. It's one in six of the population are a carer. An unpaid carer. Yes, yes, and and young and younger carers as well. And so it's actually, you know, it, it it is the issue for our time. What are we doing about aging well and aging gracefully and supporting everybody whatever their age is to live a fulfilled life until they can't and of course you know there's been lots of discussions around that area in terms of disabilities and in terms of the differences between men and women but people but the whole issue about being positive about old age has kind of got lost somewhere along the line mm-hmm. and we should be thrilled that mm-hmm. people can are living longer you know healthier lives for longer but no it's it, it is
2: yeah. it is terribly complicated. I think you've made me think about I've been rereading Toni Morrison. It, so The Bluest Eye is her first novel if anyone hasn't brilliant. read it. Uh, brilliant novel. Possibly no not better than Beloved but anyway it I know it's certainly up there but she (laughs) she what she's doing is subverting everything um even the character's own expectations of their own ugliness or so on has been formed by the society that they're in and you have just reminded me Mm. that perhaps we are all doing that for our own aging because i hear myself saying some old bag and then i'll quote my own age because i've forgotten the age I am, so yeah. it's like old age. It's always other people and never good. No, no, and
0: it's. I mean, the, Gra- Granny Rosie, um, my mother-in-law, who is. Um, we're, we're just we're just doing an online concert for Sage Dementia Trust in, near Chichester. Um, and Rosie has recorded a song she's wonderful uh, on the piano singing along and she's done a little um, anecdote about the 1930s growing up in Appledrum and you know Christmas then and I'm reading something and on the poster it says Granny Rosie local legend Um, and she is local legend she's 90 now Um, but what I think is incredibly interesting about um, that sort of sense of joie de vivre and all of these things that she used to be in an entertainment troupe which I write about in a book called The Old Timers and they were called The Old Timers because they sang the old musical songs not because they were all old <laughs> but they went round to hospitals and care homes um and entertained and often the people on the stage were older than the people in the audience because so, they were all in their late 80s and 90s you know it's hilarious so and i tell some of those stories you know granny rosie she does like a gin and tonic uh, so sort of the gin and tonic being put on the edge of the stage at you know the church hall as the curtains are pulled and the gin and tonic launched into the audience um you know and kathy who was registered blind 95 Uh, singing yellow polka dot bikini wearing yellow polka dot bikini (laughs) over her normal clothes (laughs) and you know and I think it is because the images are always people in care homes who need a lot of support possibly because they have issues with uh, long-term illness or Alzheimer's or dementia um, or might have had really really tough lives and don't have a home environment and all of these sorts of things whereas there are lots of people like Richard Osmond's characters and and my family uh, you know there's you know, my godmother died a couple of years ago at the age of 104. Oh, you know? wow! <laughs> Which was pushing it, actually. Uh, you know, she. she That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you forget that the generation, particularly the generation above ours. You know, my parents' generation. Both my parents are gone now, but Rosie is going strong. You know, they. They were the ones that held it all together, frankly, that incredible generation, that stoicism of that generation. And it does remind me when I was setting up the Women's Prize for Fiction, which is now 25 years old, and it was a long process trying to get funding for it right at the beginning. And I did an interview on BBC Radio 4's Woman's Hour about the prize, and um, an um, older lady was listening to it and she got somebody to ring up. And at first, I thought it was my sister. So, when someone rang up and said, You know, like someone would like to talk to you about giving you some money for your prize, and I was like, Beth, you know, <laughs> you yes. not still funny, you know. Um, and then it turned out to be a genuine thing. And she was, um, she described herself as a wife and mother. She had seven children. She was wealthy in her own right and had wa- married a wealthy man. And her, she had been a wife and mother, as she described it. Um, but as she put it, the great joy of her life had been reading. And so she endowed the prize for me, the prize money in perpetuity. And it was the most incredible gift and generous gift. And when I finally launched the prize, there was a lot of very aggressive press, you know, you know, this very aggravating stuff. You know, if women were any good, they they wouldn't need their own prize, you know, all all of this sort of stuff. And so it went. And I worried. It was the only time I spoke to her. And I thought, well, I, I just hope she doesn't feel that she's, back to the wrong horse, as it were. So I rang up and I said, I'm really sorry. Um, everybody is so thrilled. The publishing community, most writers, it's just a few uh, journalists and it's this awful oppositional journalism we have in the UK and, you know, all of this. But I I just wanted to reassure you that we feel 100% committed to this idea and honouring and celebrating women's voices. And when I finished my spiel, she said, my dear, we went through much worse when we were trying to get the vote you know and there enough. we go and that was that was my reminder yes don't forget that they have lived mm. lives that none of us could even imagine yes um you know so just be, you know all of your experiences before don't vanish mm. anyway that's a that's a different book but that no that's that, the book i've been writing so absolutely really, no
2: that's really important <laughs> no. petersfield's shine radio I'd like to move now to listen to your son Felix reading an extract first from The Winter Ghost before we talk about it.
1: He walked like a man recently returned to the world. Every step was careful, deliberate, every step to be relished. He was tall and clean-shaven, a little thin perhaps, dressed by Savile Row. A light woolen suit of herringbone weave, the jacket wide on the shoulders and narrow at the waist. His fawn gloves matched his trilby. He looked like an Englishman, secure in his right to be on such a street on such a pleasant afternoon in spring. But nothing is as it seems. For every step was a little too careful, a little too deliberate, as if he was unwilling to take even the ground beneath his feet entirely for granted and as he walked, his clever, quick eyes darted from side to side, as if he were determined to record every tiny detail. Toulouse was considered one of the most beautiful cities in the south of France. Certainly, Freddy admired it. The elegance of its 19th century buildings, the medieval past that slept beneath the pavements and colonnades, the bell towers and cloisters of saint Tien the bold river dividing the city in two, the pink-brick facades blushing in the April sunshine, gave Toulouse its affectionate nickname, La Ville Rose. Little had changed since Freddie had last visited, at the tail end of the 1920s. He had been another man then, a tattered man, worn threadbare by grief. Things were different now. In his right hand, Freddy carried directions, scribbled on the back of a napkin from Bibette, where he'd lunched on filet mignon and a blousy Bordeaux. In his left hand breast pocket was a letter, patterned with antiquity and dust, secure in a pasteboard wallet. It was this, and the fact that, at last, he had the opportunity to return, which brought him back to Toulouse today. The mountains where he'd come across the document held a strong significance for him. And though he had never read the letter, it was a precious possession. Freddy crossed the Place du Capitole, heading towards the Cathedral of Saint-Sartin. He walked through a network of small streets, obtuse little alleyways filled with jazz bars and poetry cellars and gloomy restaurants. He sidestepped couples on the pavements lovers and families and friends, out enjoying the warm afternoon. He passed through tiny squares and hidden ruelles and along the Rue de Tour until he reached the street he was looking for. Freddy hesitated at the corner, as if having second thoughts. Then he continued on, walking briskly now, dragging his shadow behind him. Halfway along the rue de Pentoncree was an antiquarian bookseller his destination he stopped dead to read the name of the proprietor painted in black lettering above the door momentarily his silhouette was imprinted on the building then he shifted position and the window was once more flooded with gentle sunlight causing the metal grill to glint now and ever he said
2: that was wonderful. I was really hoping that you would have chosen the beginning of that, but I think it's just such a good introduction. theres I don't want to say too much about it, but there's so much in there of um, the character that you pick up. Um, also, um, it's almost like the beginning of a classical ghost story. Um, or as I say, almost. It is like the beginning of a classical ghost story, though I know it was written in... in our age you know i can't commend it more highly with just the shadow falling and then the sunlight and the intrigue and wanting to why is he there and it sets it in its time very clearly so you know for the things i was saying about the haunting of alma fielding is this post-war this immediate post-war survivor guilt it's all there and this dapper young man and yet there's this fragility about him that is so intriguing tim how about you
3: yeah absolutely i i i, I particularly like the uh the antiquarian bookshop <laughs> i i it just it's sort of uh it, it the whole the whole the whole um what's the word i'm searching for the the atmosphere that's, that's created in that first that opening chapter is fantastic yeah
2: and felix read it beautifully
0: yes well i mean F- um, felix my son is is an actor in music theatre um, he, until March, the whatever it was, was Marius in Les Mis. And I can, I'm just sit, sitting looking at the Les Mis score over there. <laughs> yes. um, so it, the, one of Marius's songs is Empty Chairs at Empty Tables and never oh. has that been more yes. uh, appropriate since mm-hmm. since then. Um, but obviously does a lot of um, audio reading and things as well. And so it was lovely. But it's particularly lovely because, in fact, he is writing the screenplay for the film of The Winter Ghosts. So he's been working on um, the book, and I would say at the moment, knows it better than me, uh, probably. So, you know, we're, that's been a, a wonderful thing that we would have been doing that um, remotely while he's been on tour. But because of lockdown, he's been able to be home um, quite a bit. So that's been fantastic to actually be able to mm-hmm. work together on that. Will um, there be music in it? Oh, yes. Of yes. Course. It, it, it's a big film. It's that, that kind of big, sweet film, you know, sort of birds of prey above the Pyrenees to start with and snow and like so that. what was your inspiration? I am inspired always, as you know, by landscape. It's the, it's the first thing, really, that um, speaks to me for a story. And there is a place um, down in the south of France, in Languedoc, very close to the border with Andorra, so right down in Ariège, right at the bottom, um, in the Pyrenees, near the Pyrenees, uh, called Tarascon. And it's one of those places that we had been that we have a tiny house in Carcassonne. I've had it for 31 years, and it's been the inspiration for all of my historical fiction, which is love letters to that part of France, really. And we have been to Tarascon many, many times. And I was always surprised that what I always think of as the voices in the landscape, which is where a story starts for me, just was silent there. It's such an extraordinary place, and and that kind of intrigued me because it, it should have spoken to me. I should have been hearing the whispering of a story. And then one year we went in the winter and it was, oh, I see. Yes, this is not a summer place for a story. It's a winter place. And I live in uh, Chichester, in the north of Chichester. And all of us who live in this part of of England know that every church hall you go to, every uh, memorial hall, every uh, church itself, there are plaques to the men of the village, the men of the town who died in the First World War, It is a very distinctive part of the English and French landscape, particularly. And, and of course, it's, it's done differently in Germany, but particularly England and France. And so the shadow of that generation, the lost generation of the First World War is everywhere. And so when I'm walking my dog, um, I quite often go past the Lavent Memorial Hall or in Chichester Cathedral. There's uh, the chapel to the men of the Royal Sussex Regiment. And for me, this is always how stories start. So just thinking about those lost men that I, whose names I see every day as I walk, uh, being in Tarascon and suddenly thinking, oh, there's a story. And then going right back to when I was researching my 2005 novel, Labyrinth. When you're doing big amounts of historical research, you find out so many wonderful things, but they don't necessarily belong in that book, <laughs> as you know, Susie. And I discovered that there had been, um, at the tail end of Catharism, so in the 14th century, so later than my period of Labyrinth, which finishes in 1244, the historic period, that in um, 1328 there had been the last um, few cathars kind of chased out 1328 the last cathar priest was executed and it's a apostolic religion which means that once the last priest is gone the religion is gone uh, you know so
2: i didn't know that yes no, of, no uh, you oh know that, that
0: you have to have a priest to make a priest and so um so catharism was was eradicated essentially uh, the last, which th- is why they wanted to kill them absolutely oh, and uh, the, last, the last the uh, last cathar perfect was Guillembe and he was executed in thirteen twenty eight and so, with some of those high mountain villages in the pyrenees the um what the great historian Anne Brenon calls the whisper of catharism went on longer, and I discovered a piece of real history that a village had fled from Catholic troops and had been immured inside the mountain. And I was always obsessed with the story of Masada, or Masada, um, and the idea of that slow death, thinking that you had found refuge in the mountain. And I had come across that piece of history again um, when uh, reading on about Henry IV, uh, the great French king, Henry of Navarre, that brought peace to France um, in the wars of religion, and that it was troops around that time who found this cave, and it was opened up, so therefore, much later, the period of time I'm writing about now in my Burning Cheap Chambers series, the 16th century and the 17th century, and this cave was finally uncovered. And inside there were, you know, hundreds of skeletons who had been immured in you know the, the 13th, 14th century and had not been found for hundreds of years. And this just stayed with me. Mm. And I'd never found a place for that story, Uh, you know, I knew that it was quite a small story. So it wasn't one of my big historicals in that way. Um, And then the, the combination of these things, I started to think about everything that I write has good men and good women and bad men and bad women. In my big historical fiction, I tell the unheard and underheard stories of women, but I'm also interested in the unheard and underheard stories of men. And so, on the one hand, with my historical fiction, the women are strong and powerful and historically accurate. Yeah. Um, and they are the heroes of the story. They are the ones with momentum. They are the ones carrying the story forward. But I also wanted to write a story about the men that don't want to be those men. What about the gentle, quiet men who are thoughtful and sensitive and feel things very deeply and don't want to have to be the man standing there with the weapon? Mm. So if you like, it's the flip side to this strong women. What about the gentle men? Mm. And one of the pieces of research I did into the First World War was this, uh, this, this kind of phenomenon that so many men came back who, did, who were lucky enough to come back. They were not allowed to grieve. Um, the grieving was, it was the, the wives and the mothers and the sisters were allowed to grieve, but men were essentially told to mm. shut up. Mm-hmm. And I thought about the consequences on men, that they weren't allowed to feel sad for the people they'd lost either, or their own lost lives, mm-hmm. or their damaged lives. And particularly for the boys, you know, the uh, you know left behind and the fathers who were not fighting, they were just, you know, this English stiff, stiff upper lip... And so I wanted to write a story about a wonderful and beautiful man who just couldn't cope with his grief for his brother, and was told that he wasn't allowed to have it. And there was a, there's a great deal of evidence for the damage, the the emotional and mental damage done to that generation of boys and men. And I think that's a really important thing to write about. You know, if you yeah. like, you know, patriarchy destroys everybody. Yeah, it's not just women. Yes. <laughs> yeah. it's
2: it's it's all the men who don't want to have to be those yeah. people. And but so, it also subverts the sibling rivalry thing because yeah. he actually wasn't the preferred son, yeah. and yet he deeply loves his brother. He, he loves his brother, it. loves his brother, and he's told to pull himself
0: together. And what have you got to complain about? And he, he, it breaks him, and so that was where the story came from. And for the first time ever, the I had a filmic beginning to. The book, which is not what happens to me usually, it's a much broader canvas, um, and I could see suddenly a car on a road in the winter in the Pyrenees, and it was as if it was a long camera angle, and then it was the medium camera angle, and I could see that it was an Austin Eight, and my granddad <laughs> had an Austin Eight, um, and so that's I'm sure why it was in, and it was it was the car that people started to have in in you know 1928. And um, and then I got very, very close in and I saw a pair of leather driving gloves on the steering wheel. And then I kind of looked up and I thought, wow, it's a man. And there was Freddie just there. And he he's, you know, for many people, he's my, you know, many readers, they love him as my favourite male character, if you like. People feel very... Um, uh, attracted to him and sympathetic to him, but he—it was very unusual for him. He arrived absolutely
2: fully formed, and, and I just knew it was modern, his story, isn't yeah. he? In his way, I think. Now we we slightly more accepting of the the gentleness. And wasn't it your first romance?
0: Yes, in a way. Yes, absolutely. I've always written stories with love in them, but it's—I very much actively not wanted to write girl meets boy because oh. there are many more stories. In a woman's life than that one, and the majority of story first stories are that one. Um, you know, it's back to the idea of you know older people having lived all of these incredible lives beforehand, and so I'm interested in the rest of women's lives and not the falling in love bit. But when it was then a boy, um, a young man, really a, br- a very fragile young man, and of course the if you like the not the it's the moral of the story, but the story is that he can only save himself from his terrible grief. By saving somebody else. Mm. And it is by learning to let his heart melt again um, and do something for somebody else that brings him back to himself. His
2: frozen heart. His frozen heart, Mm. yeah. Oh, it's very wonderful well you did brilliantly there to not give spoilers away and I've, <laughs> I've also ensured I'm not doing because I do urge you all to read it I think it's also a perfect we were going to talk about it as you know at Halloween but you were very busy but I think it's actually more perfect as a Christmas read um, and I also this is wonderful on radio but I do want to say I've got a really beautiful edition yeah, you've got an old uh, hard, the hardback edition the
0: hardback yes. edition and th- this is the, um, at the front I don't know why I'm opening it but so we can both look at it. Um but at the front we have a beautiful old um 1928 reproduction map of that part of France the you know the old uh, yes. Baidaker. I th- I think it's a Baidaker but it might it might I not be. I think it is. Um, but it's a it's a, again I think that's one of the things about ghost stories. I love old fashioned ghost stories, and I, I'm a great fan of all of the obvious ones, you know, Algernon Blackwood, M.R. James, James. <laughs> the great Edith Wharton, who is an extraordinary ghost story writer. You know, she, she's seen as, you know, One of the first, maybe even the first woman to win the Pulitzer. But I mean, her ghost stories—her sort of more entertaining um, stories—are extraordinary. But one of the things about those ghost stories, whether it's right back to Charles Dickens or or any of those others of the nineteenth century as well as the early twentieth, is that they were always beautifully illustrated. And this book is
2: illustrated with um, line
0: drawings. And um, and I wanted it to look like an old
2: fashioned book that it could have fallen from the 1920s itself yes i love that and especially when you have chapters that start with a beautiful little illustration yes. that yes. also encapsulates what happens in that chapter and it's the thing when i knew i was going to do this i listened to the audiobook because i you know if i need to have something at speed i just have yes, that going that beautifully read by julian Tut. actually yes though i have to say do you think felix i'm no, no, just serious I,
0: and you know no, me yeah, well yeah, enough yeah.
2: i wouldn't just say that no, 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 but no. there were ways in which I felt it wasn't fully done justice. No, to... and Felix
0: has been living Freddie yeah. um, for you know yeah. s- some time. I think so feels a great deal. Yeah. You know, he. I mean, Felix in the film, were he to be cast, would be George. He would be the brother, not Freddie. Yes. You know, he's, you know, by Felix's casting is, um, uh, is, uh, you know, they always have these kind of rather hilarious things in actors. <laughs> but his casting is basically Nazi stroke, <laughs> Second World War Air Force stroke Mormon. Uh, you know he looks like that he's that sort of blonde you know sort of, totally <laughs> is. his first job was the, in the book of mormon indeed <laughs> i think that's so yeah. funny he is he's so he's the george not the
2: freddy um the lederhosen would suit him very I, i'm not sure he'd be persuaded into those <laughs> tim now tim i have to tell you kate is very resistant to the ghost story aren't you tim is I'm, any I'm, you've liked
3: no, well i like I enjoy this one actually but i'm not a i'm not a great ghost story reader not not particularly anti but just don't tend to read them i don't yeah, know why that well, that should be the case but um um yeah i'm just just not a, i just haven't read lots well we so.
2: probably like this because this isn't having said that, that that structurally particularly at the beginning is the classic ghost story it actually isn't then no no it it, it isn't i mean in my collection of short stories
0: the um the mistletoe bride um, they are more traditional ghost stories in that they are of a particular length. And I think for a lot of people, ghost stories they don't particularly enjoy because they don't particularly want to read short stories. And actually, I mostly don't. I prefer to get stuck into a big novel. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say The Winter Ghost. there are ghosts in it, but it's not a traditional ghost story in terms of it being about a haunting in quite the same sort of way. Um, it's more parallel universe i suppose which i
2: believe in actually I, I suspect that all ghosts are just where we just get a snapshot of some other
3: thing yeah i mean i think that this is yes it's as i say not a traditional not a ghost story in the sense that i think of a ghost story of, of a haunting as you say it's much more of a of a world that's that's there and you stumble across it in the blizzard and, and it's yes. there and then and then you come out of it again and and that and to me is purpose. my purpose Yes. It's not
2: like a random yeah. haunting that's simply to terrify you. In fact, it isn't terrifying. It's that it, it subverts that yeah. that they're actually the resolution that we've talked about earlier. There has to be a resolution, and not just oh, I'm terrified and have a heart attack or something. You know.
3: Yeah, I also I also find that the whole the 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 sort of the, the post First World War angle I think that's really interesting as well. I mean, that yeah. that yeah. that to me is is. Um, is one of the things that really is special about the book. Thank so, you.
0: Yeah. And and I d- deliberately chose 1928, and you will know this, Tim, um, from your huge knowledge of literature, is that it's a, it's very, very interesting, the First World War. And I suspect we might see something like this about the experience which the world's been going through this year as well, which is that there was a lot of writing during the First World War, m- namely you know, most famously the First World War poets, but also some extraordinary life-writing memoir, you know, Vera Brittain and and others. And then there was a a really interesting silence. Mm. Mm -hmm. And it was a sort of whether, you know, it's hard to know whether that's because people just didn't want to talk about it anymore, it was too painful. And then I would say 1928 is published, I still would say, the greatest anti-war novel ever for me, which is All Quiet on the Western Front. Mm -hmm. And film. And, and just poem. amazing, and that amazing final paragraph when it, the the poignancy of it, and he said he died on a day when all was quiet on the Western front, and that sort of the pointlessness of it and all of that. and then, after that, there was suddenly an explosion, so it was as if ten years needed to pass before people could start to see the first world war with any degree mm. of hindsight i mm. suppose mm-hmm. or um perspective mm-hmm. mm. and that's why i chose 1928 for for the winter ghosts because i thought that seemed to me a very significant moment um where it started to be something that had happened rather than mm.
3: so this thing you said i heard i heard um william boyd talking on the on a podcast the other day about uh he was being asked about whether he would write a book about the pandemic uh and whether you know now he was something would interest him and he said no. And he would wait. He needed to wait 10, 20, 30 mm-hmm. years before some kind of perspective to be able to write about anything about it at all, because um, you just need that time.
2: Yeah, um, awesome. I think something happens to language as well. And my favourite books is Paul Fazel, Great War and Modern Memory. And I think we're also almost going in the opposite direction. So at the beginning of the war, it was very romantic that uh, there was the fallen, the slain, on their steeds. And it very quickly became dead, horse. It mm. became a very, well, not coarse, it became a literal language mm-hmm. instead of a highly romanticised language. And I think we're going in the opposite direction now. I think that I, you keep hearing about people that pass. Um, that we, we don't actually say they died anymore. Um And I think all the... Maybe it began with Princess Diana, I'm not sure, because the crown's gone huge again, hasn't it? And, and all this outpouring mm. of, you know, where flowers are left on roadsides and so on. And it'd be interesting to see with the mm. pandemic, in the sheer numbers, we have to leave that behind. I,
0: I think also that the, the enormous difference is that although... You know, the Times of London was um, printing what we would now essentially call propaganda, as were all the papers in all the countries. Um, so people were reading every day reports of the war in the news, but they were several days, if week, not weeks, mm. out of date. They were very, very partial. Sure. And we have the opposite now, which is a mm. kind of blitzkrieg <laughs> of far too much information, impossible to know what is accurate and what isn't. In, in the moment. In the moment. So I think that they that that is the other thing about writing about the pandemic. If you're a novelist, it's about, well, what, what have you got to say? I didn't have anything to say about the First World War, but I did have something to say about male grief and how men were not allowed to be mm. human. Um, and I felt that was a really important mm. thing. Mm. So that... Was it? So I would never think of this as being a war novel, or even in the shadow of the war, even though obviously Mm. it's there. Um, And I think that's always the case in fiction. It's it's got to be something that let you know. It's like I always think of it like Francis Hodgson Burnett, um, The Secret Garden. (laughs) You know, all the walls and it's there, um, and you can put your hand around all the walls and it's overgrown. But you've got to find your door in, and once you've found your door into your novel, then that's the novel you want to write. But if you don't have a door, then it's not your no- it's not for you.
2: That's a really nice analogy, particularly for historical fiction. Mm-hmm. Yes, you've um, got to you've got to feel that there's yes. you it's some, you're making some sort of contribution. Because it does already exist. Yes. In a way, it's finding your yeah, way in. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But also in Paul Fuzelli talks about the the supernatural, the belief yeah. in the supernatural growing during the war, which does fit. Um, but also, again, at the end of the war, not only were they not to talk about it, but everybody, the white feathers had been handed out at the beginning. But by the end, they were treated as absolute fools for to have fallen for all the propaganda and so on. And I think that's really beastly. That's almost the worst thing yeah. Yeah, no, it's a terrible time. Anyway, Kate, that has been wonderful. Thank you so much. I knew you'd be a brilliant guest, and you have been. And it won't surprise anyone to hear that Kate has also presented um, many book shows. Back Um, in
0: the day. Back back in the the day. day.
2: (laughs) But also, if you want to hear Kate again, and you once pray god live theatre begins again at chichester festival theatre she's done a whole series of pre and post show talks
0: well i do um i do those for them as a you know as a local girl as it were um i i'm naturally nosy about other people's creative patterns so i love interviewing people so i do those for the for the festival season and although we haven't had a festival season this year i've done a couple of the interviews but next year we'll be back Um, uh, for that and some of your listeners might be going to see the youth theatre show Pinocchio and I'll be doing a pre-show interview with the wonderful youth theatre director Dale Rooks on the 29th of December Uh, but otherwise you know it will be the next summer season Um, uh, but you know we've got quite a lot to get through until then you know not least of all publication because I should have had a novel out in May and that's been delayed and it's been the longest I've ever between writing a book and publishing it. And I found that very difficult. The you know, City of Tears, which is the second of my Burning Chambers series, comes out in January now, which you will all be ordering from One Tree Books, obviously, um, as we all know. And um, hopefully
3: you'll, you'll come in and sign some copies for us, us as well. Yep. will,
0: in the real world, in real life. Um, but it's a very odd thing because it's part of a series. So I've been um, thinking about writing number three, and I've never had that experience before, where I'm starting to think about a third book where the second book hasn't come out. And I found that quite um, disorientating, mm. actually, uh, you know, because and I had to do an interview the other day and somebody asked me something and said, I love this character. And I had a complete brain freeze. And I thought, I have no idea who that character is. Oh, that's all. awful. Awful. I absolutely yeah. couldn't remember a thing. Yeah. So I need to read my own book now. Normally it's very quick, you know. And <laughs> what about your caring book? Is that... That is coming out on June the 3rd and it's part of a series from the Wellcome Trust which has been commissioning novelists to write short books on issues of um, important social and medical care. So as opposed to specialists as it were, doctors and Mm -hmm, things. mm -hmm. And so Elif Shafak has done one, Um, Joanna Cannon, wonderful uh, novelist, has done one and and now me. And that will come out on the 3rd of June um, in time for Carers Week which next year starts on the 8th of June. Um, And we'll be doing quite a lot of things to support that. And my beloved dad, uh, he died uh, from from Parkinson's, with Parkinson's. And so we'll also be doing some um, events with Parkinson's UK, which is the charity that I support.
2: Brilliant. Well done. That's fantastic. Thank you, Kate. We look forward to welcoming you back. Tim, so who have we got in January as our guest?
3: Well, we're hoping to get uh, either Thomas or Deborah Harding, oh. uh, or both maybe, Didn't uh, to you come in and talk Deborah about Harding. their books.
0: Okay. I did. I interviewed Deborah Harding for the publication of her amazing memoir, Dancing with the Octopus, which is the well story. It's a, a book about restorative justice, but it's actually the story of how she was abducted at the age of 14 from her church car park and raped and left for dead by an a, a attacker and um how 30 years later she found him
3: it's it, an extraordinary book. it is an it is an absolutely extraordinary book and also it's about her relationship with her mother as um which she had a very troubled relationship with but that's that's um integrated into the story and it's a it's a it is a pretty har- it's a fairly har- harrowing read but it is a it's a it's really, really okay. brilliantly done,
0: and she is a beautiful writer, isn't she? She is. I mean, wonderful. So I've heard. I must, writer. I must
2: definitely yeah. read it for sure. Um, but but before that, we will have on the twenty eighth of December our sort of Christmas roundup in Talking Boots Cafe, of everything. Maybe we'll do charades or something, Tim. Shall we? have one? Something like that.
3: Possibly, Susie. <laughs>
2: Thank you, thank you for listening. Goodbye, see you in a fortnight.
1: You've been listening to Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly, and produced by John Wellsman.
2: There's nothing like hearing your name on the radio.
1: And this Christmas, Shine Radio will share your message of comfort and joy with loved ones you can't be with.
0: You can send a message to a neighbour, a friend or a family member. Or just someone you know would love to hear their name on the radio.
1: Surprise, delight and connect someone you love this Christmas with a message of comfort and joy on Shine Radio.
2: You can email your message for one of our presenters to read. Or you can record it with your own voice. Email your
1: message of comfort and joy to team at petersfieldradio.uk
2: Or record it over the phone by calling petersfield 555 500 Or press the record button at petersfieldradio.uk Shine Radio's messages of comfort and joy. Who will you delight this Christmas?